When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are listening to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I'd love to talk about books with anyone and everyone. While listening to my podcast, you will hear author interviews, behind-the-scenes conversations about various aspects of the publishing world, theme discussions with other book lovers, and more. For more book recommendations and a complete list of all of my interviews, check out my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. In 2022, I would love for you to join my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month and a monthly advanced read and pre-publication author chat. For those on Facebook, I host a special Patreon Facebook group where we all chat books. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, I am chatting with Geraldine Brooks about Horse. Geraldine is the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel March and the international bestsellers The Secret Chord, Caleb's Crossing, People of the Book, and Year of Wonders. She has also written the acclaimed nonfiction works Nine Parts of Desire and Foreign Correspondence. Born and raised in Australia, Brooks lives in Massachusetts. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And And we're we're the the Professional Professional Book Book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy happy reading. reading! Welcome, Geraldine. How are you today? I am well, and it's great to be with you. I am thrilled to pieces that you are here. This is just so exciting for me to have you on my show. Well, thank you for having me. So, Geraldine, one of the things I really like for authors to do is give a quick synopsis of their book for those that won't have read it yet. Can you do that now for Horace, please? Sure. It is a braided narrative, and it's set in three time periods. And the historical spine of the story is based on the true story of Lexington, who was the most famous racehorse of the 1850s. And this was a horse renowned not just for his incredible blistering speed and endurance, but also for being the greatest stud sire in American thoroughbred history. And it's about what happened to him prior to and during the Civil War and after. And the second strand is around the science about the horse's skeleton, which ended up in the Smithsonian. And it's a contemporary story about a scientist working on the bones for the clues to the horse's strength and speed and an art historian who's looking at paintings of the horse that include 
interesting depictions of the black horseman whose skill was responsible for his success. And that brings us the painting, and one of the fate, the fate of one of the paintings brings us unexpectedly to the roiling art movements of post-World War II New York City. So many fascinating things rolled into one story, and I can't wait to learn more about how you discovered Lexington and then all of your research. So why don't we start with you talking a little bit about how you came across Lexington and then decided to write about him? It was entirely by chance. I was invited to a lunch, and one of the other guests was an official from the Smithsonian Institution, and he was telling the story of his uh, remarkable task that he'd just completed, which was delivering the skeleton of this famous 1850s racehorse from Washington to the Museum of the Horse in Lexington, Kentucky. And as he told the story of the racehorse's career and its twists and turns and what happened during the Civil War, my lunch just sat uneaten and I suspected that I was hearing the story that would make my next novel. So tell me all about your research, because you have several different components of the story. So I'm sure it took a while to get everything nailed down. And then you probably had to fill in the gaps with some of these things as well. Well, that's why it was a good theme for me, because what I love is to find an incredible story from the historical record and to follow the line of fact as far as I can. But when I hit the end of that line, when the, when the line begins to fray and we can't know for certain, that's where the novelist's imagination has to take over. And so you learn as much as you can about the period and the people of the period, and then you let your imaginative empathy fill in the gaps by saying, well, maybe it was like this. This is how I imagine it. Well, what did you do to learn more about Lexington? What kind of research did you have to do? Well, it started with the horse himself. And luckily the horse, every snort and whinny of this horse was thoroughly documented because he was so famous and so beloved and 30 or 40,000 people would turn out to see him race, which is an extraordinary number when you consider the smaller population of the United States in those days. Former presidents would come and, you know, he was just such a celebrity. And the racing press at the time, there were many, many newspapers that were just devoted to horse racing because it was still an agrarian society. And this was the pastime that brought everybody together. It was huge. It was bigger than anything that we have today. And it was more universally beloved. It was like the NFL if everybody in America also played football because <laughs> everybody at that time had a horse or, you know, had grown up with horses. And, and so the, the races of the great thoroughbreds were followed intently. So I didn't have too much trouble with the line of fact about the horse, but I learned that there were these skilled black horsemen that were very instrumental to his early success. And their lives, unfortunately, were less well-documented, so that required a deep dive into archives and letters and just trying to learn as much about these men as I could and then filling in the gaps where I didn't know with the work of historians who've done immense research on domestic life of enslaved people, just trying to get as much of the detail of their lives right as I could. and then. There was the wonderful experience of going to the Smithsonian's Museum Support Center, which is 
just a world of wonders. It's it's one laboratory after the other full of the most incredible art and science going on, just masterpieces going by on trolleys one way and heads of triceratops going by the other way. And my little corner of it that I was exploring was about painting conservation and also osteoprep, which is how you get the bones ready for display. So I was looking at how they how they research the skeleton of Lexington and the and the kinds of information that bones can give you. That must have been an incredible experience getting to visit that laboratory. I would love to do that. It was an incredible privilege and just mind blowing. You know, it is such a great place. It's just it's it they have absolutely everything there. They have, you know, the, the DNA of every species and you know, just incredible work going on there every day. How long did you spend there? Oh, I, I was only there for a day, but, you know, I, it was really great to hang out with the scientists. And then I visited on another occasion um, an art conservation lab to see how uh, scientists try to establish uh, the history of a painting if they don't know too much about it. So, you know, it was it was wonderful to be able to get up in other people's business in that way. <laughs> I love that description of it. Well, I think it's really interesting three timelines and how you go about writing that. Did you write each timeline itself and then try to braid them? Did you write in a chronological manner? How did you do that? Or I guess not really chronological, but in the order that they appear in the book? No, not really. So I was I was noodling away on each of them and you have to sort of trust the story to tell you how it's all going to work out because I started out not exactly knowing how they're going to connect in the end and you write in a in a state of just uh uncertainty as the story tells you how you might be able to connect these things in a satisfying way and it's a, it's a little risky and it's a little nerve-wracking. And, and in this book, it didn't reveal itself very early on at all. And then finally it does, and it's just such a wonderful feeling. There's nothing better than when you see it. You see how the whole thing is going to come together. So did you start out with one timeline and write that entire timeline and then... No, no, no. I was working on all three and just trying to probe in the story to find the connective tissue. And did you have to move stuff around a lot after you'd written, or did it pretty much stay in the order you put it in? No, it moved. Uh, it moved a lot, actually. Yeah, no, you ha- you have to you have to have a lot of willingness to give up on unprofitable lines of inquiry and linkages that don't work in order to get to what will. That makes sense. Well, what surprised you the most while you were writing this book? Uh, what surprised me most factually, uh, going back to the Smithsonian Museum Support Center, was y- you get a tour of this place and every high-tech gizmo you can imagine is there for doing scientific work. And then you get to osteoprep and you find out that they still clean bones by putting carcasses in a room full of bugs. Ooh. Bugs eat the flesh off the bones, and that is the best way to prepare bones without causing damage to the bone, and so it is in a pristine state for the research that's necessary. 
And that was so surprising to me, visiting the bug room, I'd have to say, was the biggest surprise in the research. Okay, that would have been a huge surprise for me as well. I had no idea that that's how they did that. Yeah, it's really terrific. And uh, and then other surprises, you know, I was very interested in, there's a beautiful painting of the racehorse Lexington in the Smithsonian, and it came to the Smithsonian in a bequest that was from a feminist pioneering gallery owner in New York uh, in the post-World War II period when abstract expressionism and op art and all these new art movements were roiling our aesthetics. And her name was Martha Jackson. And so when she when she died, her bequest to the Smithsonian was Pollocks and de Kooning's and Bridget Riley's. And then this one very conventional 19th century oil portrait of a horse. Why did she have that painting? So that's the kind of mystery that I love to try and solve. And then finding the way to connect her to the horse was another lovely surprise, but I won't spoil that. Well, it is so interesting that she had all of these much more modern works and then the painting of Lexington. Yeah, that's what she loved, edgy contemporary art. She was way out there ahead of her time and always was the first to support the newest, edgiest thing. So it was intriguing why she would have had this and kept it till she died. Yeah, for that long and then donating it. That's very fascinating. What about the easiest and hardest characters to write in this one? I don't think anybody's ever easy to write. Oh, I suppose Jess. Jess is the Australian um, scientist and... I guess she was a little bit easy because I borrowed a whole lot of my childhood characteristics and gave them to her. So she, like me, is a nerdy Sydney schoolgirl who lives in the inner city and um, but loves the natural world. And so she is reduced to going to the dump to get specimens for her scientific inquiry. And her mother freaks out when she brings these noisome <laughs> things home. And that was just totally borrowed from my own childhood. So I guess that was somewhat easy. I think the hardest was probably uh, the one that required me to work the most diligently because there was a lot at stake is um, is the the contemporary black character Theo, and I relied on a lot of hard listening to uh, black friends who were good enough to share their experiences of modern black life in America with me so that I could build his character and try and get him as right as possible. And did that take a while? All of it took a while. This was a very, you know, this is a hard, hard book to write because there was so many different areas of investigation and then bringing them all together in a satisfying way. So it's probably the book of mine that's taken the longest. How long would you say it took you from very beginning of the idea to the book coming out? You know, it's hard to say because you get the idea and you, you're very much hard at work on a different book. So it's there in the back of your mind and you're thinking about it. But it, just in terms of sitting down to write it, it uh, I suppose it took me the better part of five or six years. I've always been fascinated by how authors get their ideas. Do you just store up a bunch of ideas and then one of them comes to the surface when it's time to write? Or do you really settle on one idea and then not worry about others until you've gotten that story written? Well, it's more like getting a crush on somebody. So <laughs> I, I've described it as 
you go to a party with somebody you've been going out with for a while and then you see somebody very attractive giving you the eye from across the room. But you know you have to live with the one what brung you, so you have to go home to the novel that is giving you all the troubles and you understand what the difficulties are. But there's this, this infatuation with this other idea that you've seen and you, you know that that one's going to be easy and perfect and you can see exactly how it's going to work. And then, of course, you, you get to the end of the one you're working on and, you know, you mop the sweat off your brow and you excitedly go for this shiny, bright new idea and it moves in with you and you realise it also drops its wet towels on the floor and <laughs> it leaves its dirty socks in the bathroom and has all the same difficulties and struggles and will require just as much work, if not more, than the one you just finished. But at the beginning, there's this optimism and it is just like having a crush. Okay, I love that analogy. I have never heard it explained that way, but I think it is the perfect analogy. Thank you. So I guess the idea there, though, is you have this crush and then you hear about all sorts of other ideas or see all sorts of other crushes. And then the one that just continues to linger is the one that you focus on next. I think for me, it's more, it's more like I, I, I know what the next idea is. And I've learned now not to over-romanticize it. I know that when I get to it, it's going to be just as hard. But I know what the next, I always know what the next book is, you know, at some point, either halfway through or two thirds of the way through the one I'm working on. So the idea is there and it's kind of, it's kicking around in sub, some part of your subconscious so that when you sit down, you've got an idea about how to pursue it. I always find that to be so helpful. If I have some new idea or thought or something I'm working through, to definitely give it some time to kind of ping around in my brain. And eventually then I do have a better sense for what it's going to be. Yes, absolutely. Well, what about the title? I've read about it and I understand why it's called Horse, but I'd love for you to share that with my listeners. I think it's really interesting. So when Lexington died, he was so famous and so beloved. He was given a proper like burial and he, he was, they built a special casket for him which is why when somebody decided that his bones should be exhumed for the quite new Smithsonian Institution, the skeleton was in good condition and they could do that. So the horse goes to the Smithsonian, is articulated and put on exhibit as an example of this beloved, famous, particular racehorse, Lexington. And that's how he sits in uh, Washington for decades. And then as time goes on, the fame of Lexington wanes and the mission of the Smithsonian changes and it becomes much more interested instead of being a cabinet of curiosities to being a scientific research and educational institution. And so they're not interested in Lexington as a famous specific racehorse. They're interested in him as an example of Equus Cabolus, horse. So his skeleton is relegated to the Hall of Bones as an example of horse next to an example of rabbit next to an example of elk. And then finally, you know, the final indignity, he's stuffed up in the attic of the Natural History Museum to gather dust for several decades until the new International Museum of the Horse in Kentucky realizes that the Smithsonian has the racehorse 
that was the foundation of the thoroughbred industry in Kentucky and the reason Kentucky is what it is in horse racing. And they apply to have skeleton on permanent loan. And now Lexington is back in pride of place as the center of an exhibition about his specific career and about the history of the thoroughbred industry in Kentucky. And his connection to Preakness, and I didn't even realize that the Preakness was named after a horse named Preakness. So all of that was completely intriguing to me. Yes, well, Lexington sired more champions than any other thoroughbred. And this is really remarkable because he would have sired even more that we'd know about, except it was the Civil War interrupted horse racing and a lot of horses who would have gone to become great racehorses went to become military mounts for generals like General Grant rode one of um, Lexington's sons. But his progeny were incredibly successful on the track. The first winner of the Kentucky Derby was a son of Lexington called Aristides, who was trained by a black trainer and ridden by a black jockey. And so all that incredible success of the black horsemen gets swept away during the Jim Crow era when black jockeys are forced off the track and black trainers are forced out of the business for for decades and decades. And only just now is their contribution to the early industry being appreciated properly and are they finding their way back to this profession that they essentially helped establish. I didn't know any of that, and I actually didn't even realize horse racing had started as early as it did until I read your book. Well, it was just a huge thing that brought everybody together. It was a national obsession. Well, in your cover, so it really ties in with some of your earlier books. I am assuming that was on purpose as kind of a marketing and also just a branding thing. Well, what happened was they came up with the cover horse and there was a bit of argy-bargy because at one point the publishers didn't like the title horse and they wanted me to come up with something more poetic but I, I was sticking to my guns on that because I love how it ties into the story of the horse at the Smithsonian just being an example of horse for a while and um so I was sticking to my guns on the title and they kind of said well you can have horse is the title, but then you can't have a picture of a horse on the cover. And I thought that was a little nuts because horses are so beautiful. But they did come up with this lovely painting. And then once they had that, they decided that they would get the same artist to redesign the jackets for all of my former novels so that there'd be a uniform look. And I think they are really beautiful. They are. And automatically, when you see it, you're going to associate it with you, which I think is wonderful. Yeah, I think they did a really lovely job in, you know, some of the new images for the older novels are really wonderful. Absolutely. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you have read that you recommend. So uh, I am still absolutely reeling from the experience of reading Overstory by Richard Powers, which is such a powerful novel about our place in nature, and it just made me see trees in an entirely new way. And then I am enthralled by a book called Worn by Sophie Tannhauser, which is a uh, nonfiction book about the cost of what we put on our back. And she looks at the history of 
what we wear through different textiles like cotton and silk. And she travels all over the world. She goes to the Uyghur areas in China and looks at how cotton is produced by slave labor, that she goes uh, south to the big cotton plantations uh, in the south of the United States and looks at the environmental costs of cotton production. And she's just such a great storyteller and such an adventurer. So it is a fascinating book. That does sound fascinating. And I do think there is beginning to be a much bigger focus on clothing and how much of it has become almost disposable when you buy all these cheap things and you don't feel like you need to wear them many times at all and you get rid of them. And that instead, people should really be trying to focus on not having it be so disposable. Well, she starts the book in the most wonderful way, um, which is all the wonderful clothes she found at the dump, you know, uh, where people uh, have a swap shack where you can bring things. And she, you know, she talks about finding Marameco designer dresses and Loden coats and barber jackets and all these things that were built to last and that you can get fashion, you know, for free. You don't have to, you know, that, that it's not actually necessary to buy this disposable fast fashion, that you can have a more interesting fashion life looking at things that are upcycled. Well, that sounds fascinating. I'm going to have to track that one down. Well, Geraldine, thank you so much for joining me today on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Well, thank you for having me. This has been great. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? I've never done it. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased, and essential world news daily.